Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. We are back with the Zhang Ziyi trilogy of beautiful, epic, period wushu films begun with our show on Hero and to be concluded when we eventually cover The House of Flying Daggers. Our sponsor for this episode is the same fellow who bankrolled the Hero show, Pascal Dooley. And this time it's a film that is very, very dear to us, but again is so daunting in its subtle majesty that we put it off year after year after year. Pascal finally made us bite the green bullet of destiny. If you haven't seen the film, go and do so at once, which is almost always our advice on this show, aside from in special cases, uh, like with The Thief and the Cobbler and Zardoz, where it's like, no, 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 you got to hear this shit first. Absolutely. Otherwise you won't make it through the film. We'll pretty much tell you, like, we'll, we'll pretty much tell you don't watch this uh, at the beginning of an episode. Like, a lot of people are like, um, I, I listen to your podcast, but I don't listen to the episodes on films I haven't seen. Maybe listen to the episodes on films you haven't seen. Like Even if we spoil it for you, sh- surely going in forearmed with that much level of fresh perspective, even on something you haven't seen. Because we've also had people tell us that they listen to shows where we covered movies they'd never seen before, and that opened them up. It gave them something they hadn't expected. So we'll be within full spoiler territory within minutes. And you want to get this in HD, Crouching Tiger that is, and listen to the original traditional Mandarin Chinese language track with subtitles. Have no truck with the English language version or the DVD in standard definition. They may as well no longer exist aside from as a distraction. And I just found out the other day that this this is available in 4K. And I just want to read you a little from the review on Blu-ray.com. If Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon's 1080p remaster was a work of art, its 2160 HDR enhanced presentation is a masterpiece. It's amazing to see how much the UHD format can improve upon a texturally rich, photographed on film and 4K mastered source. 
where the 1080p Blu-ray found an incredibly filmic quality, the UHD offers much the same, but with a surge of detail that's several steps above in terms of clarity and intimacy. The film's richly defined clothes, complex facial features, wooden structural locations and other elements are breathtakingly organic and vastly superior to the Blu-ray in every way. Grain structure is attractively balanced as well, accentuating the richness of texture that abounds both near and wide, to the point that it's safe to say that few, if any, home video releases have found this much tactile clarity and textural wonder. This is hands down the reference UHD disc currently on the market. So I think that's a fairly essential purchase. And to make this extra super special, it is our 200th movie podcast since Digital Gonzo began in 2010. There's a good 150 or so School of Everything Else episodes to add to that pile, but this is movie number 200. Just out of interest, our 100th was The Iron Giant back in 2014. So, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was released at the end of 2000, a joint venture of China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and America. This is based on the fourth novel in the Wushu book series, Crane Iron Pentalogy, by Chinese novelist Wang Dulu. The others being uh, Crane Frightens Kunlun, Precious Sword Golden Hairpin, Sword Force Pearl Shine, and Iron Knight Silver Vase, which, um, from the sounds of it, was the event Vars then. Fine, which uh, was the events of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Sword of Destiny, available on Netflix now, which is the uh, Yen Wuping directed sequel to this film. It came out last year and is a mere shadow of this film. It's nice to see uh, uh, Michelle uh, Yeoh back in the role, but I'll say right now um, that Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is absolutely magnificent and leaves you aching and the sequel is very forgettable and that's a shame and it makes me wonder what was in those first three books that might possibly also have had more to do with the fourth and less to do with the fifth and you know there is there are some nice moments in in sort of destiny but um well, it doesn't compare. No, well, the the film of uh, Crouching Tiger doesn't just draw on the novel of Crouching Tiger. It does draw on the um, earlier books as well. Yeah, it it contains scenes and and things mentioned in the earlier yeah. books. So it, I suppose, it draws on the depth of a, a greater range of mm. stories. Um, and it was directed by Ang Lee, who had uh, just come off of uh, things like uh, Ride with the Devil and um, Sense and Sensibility and was about to turn his hand to the Hulk. Um, this is a man who does not like to be typecast as a director. Yeah, yeah. You know, one minute he's doing Jane Austen, the next minute he's doing Wushu, the next minute he's never doing Wushu ever again and doing a really bad Hulk film. He, uh, If you listen to him on the uh, commentary with um, 
uh, James Seamus, uh, well, they basically talk about it. They're very irreverent. Like you'd expect them to uh, uh, speak with somber appraisal of uh, what's going on, but uh, like Ang Lee, at the point where Jade Fox turns up in in disguise at uh, Jen's um, bedroom, he's like, "Yeah, so you guys have been wondering when are the when is the action starting?" Yeah, th- this is one of those rare films where the action is amazing and the drama is amazing. And, like, they both complement the other in such a way as to not feel like you're waiting for either of them to stop and for the other one to start. It's it's like a, a very delicately arranged meal where each flavour complements the next. Mm. And I think the reason for that is, is possibly to do with something we've talked about before uh, in regard to really good directors who recognise that they are not crash hot at directing action. And so they draft in second unit directors who are really good at directing action. And then you get the best of two people's individual skills Mm. to bring the quality of that to the fore. I mean, we've seen movies directed by some of these second unit guys, and they are... The, the drama part of it is competent, <laughs> but... The action far exceeds what the straight-to-video nature absolutely. of them suggests. Absolutely. And it isn't fair that they don't get much more recognition. So by getting somebody with the, the qualifications of uh, Yen Wu-Ping in to deal with the action side of it, it frees Lee up to concentrate on the drama, which shines in this. It's absolutely fantastic especially when you hold it in comparison to the sort of standard Hong Kong fare that it is almost, you can't really call it parodying because it's not a comedy, but there are certainly moments that it nods to that uh, interestingly translated It often feels movie. like Ang Lee has pulled up his sleeves and said, look, the you know Hong Kong action cinema could absolutely have this level of drawing room drama, parlour drama that 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 sense of the uh like this is actually set in 1778 so it's uh, it's alexander hamilton like yeah mm. which means that it has that sense of manners and propriety threaded through it and you know mm. people are expected to behave in a certain way and so when at least one of those characters starts to break against those boundaries it's seen as something quite dangerous <laughs> So from this point onwards, we're going to assume you've seen the film, so we're going to go into full spoilers. 
this feels like not the first beautiful martial arts film because you know Iron Monkey certainly has its uh, moments. There have no doubt been some very well shot martial arts films prior to this with some arresting photography and above average acting. But this is the first breathtaking martial arts film for me. And this uh, this was a year after The Matrix, which is you know is also a, a breathtaking martial arts film. But The Matrix wasn't going for beauty; it, it was you know the dark techno apocalypse. Mm. I think what also helps with this is that there is an elegance to the fighting, a flow to it that you can't get in a normal Hollywood-made martial arts movie. Certainly, that you couldn't back then because. It, the, the leads are... They're trained stunt fighters. They've been doing it for the majority of their careers. If anything, the wow, that's amazing, is the fact that they get the subtlety of the drama so incredibly well. Yeah. Which is, is testament to both of their acting skills and um, Lee's direction. Um, but one thing... I mean, one thing that struck me just from a little bit further down the film when uh, there's a fight between Michelle Yeoh and uh, Zhang Ziyi... Because Michelle Yeoh is, uh, I suppose, first and foremost, she was a stunt woman, wasn't she? So mm. she's not not that there's a meat and two vegness about her fighting style at all, but it's much more fight. She's not in the front cover. <laughs> she's not even on the front cover of many editions of Supercop, the yeah. Jackie Chan film she uh, starred in. Does not get the credit, um, but. You've got her her style, which she is obviously very familiar with and very fluid in. And then you've got Zhang Ji, who's a trained dancer. Um, was this her first major role? I believe it was, yeah. yeah. And having a, a choreographer, fight choreographer, um, who is able to use the skills that these women both bring to the to the game... Instead of it looking like something like, say, for example, a fight in one of the Bourne films where you've got two guys who you've trained from scratch in the same martial art, more or less. So although it comes across effectively, it looks like a choreographed fight. But having the two different styles of the two women makes it flow much more, makes it seem much more natural. Their, their own performance style is coming through in it, which means that it's the best kind of action because it's action that also tells the drama. That's the other thing. There isn't a firm dividing line between the action and the drama in this. The action tells the drama and the drama informs the action. Something about the way that the uh, the martial arts uh, is choreographed. Um, by and large, most of the actual moves in this don't look like they would inflict that much pain. They're just about um, pushing the other person away. Now, obviously, in in you know real life, um, your wushu or uh, jiaquan, cha jiao, eagle claw, northern praying mantis, and taekwon, chingquan, 
those are the northern styles. Well, there's White Crane, Dog Style, Kung Fu, Five Ancestors, Wing Chun, Southern Praying Mantis, Hak Fu Man, Bak Mei, and Dragon Style. These are the northern styles. And of course, Shaolin and Jeet Kune Do. And Drunken Boxing, you're going to get smacked in the face and you're going to get nosebleeds. But by and large, most of the actual fights here seem to be about point and block and deflect and redirect and deflect and counterpoint and it's it's fencing mm, absolutely and it, again it sells the expertise of the people who are involved ultimately yeah. when it what it comes down to is that you should only be able to land a blow if the person you're fighting doesn't know what they're doing or gets unlucky kind of like what um nick gillard wanted to do with the jedi in uh, phantom menace you know, the, the idea of you all touch, and they'll do this really complicated chess game at 100 miles an hour. That works in Crouching Tiger beautifully because you've got these fantastically acted, really well, I say really well scripted scenes. If you listen to the dialogue in English, it can get mangled and sound awful. So honestly, it really, like, it comes down to the fact that in, in Mandarin Chinese, this sounds beautiful mm. and reads poetically. Absolutely. And they deliver it with such weight, whereas none of the dialogue in the prequels does. So when they just start fighting, you're just like, yep, touch, 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 but none of this really matters because everything is so ridiculous. I wonder if we watched the prequels and they were in Mandarin Chinese. We could try. We could give it a go. We watched, because um, Sword of Destiny was filmed in English, yeah. and it didn't feel right when we were watching it, so we switched it to the Chinese dub. But we just said it's quite forgettable, so yeah, really, it's not. It it's just it. slapping but, a layer on there. But then it's not, because it, at the time when I saw it, I thought, well, maybe it's because you've got these actors who are, who are able to perform in their mm. first language, but Mandarin Chinese is not Michelle Yeoh's first language. Yeah. I don't think even, I mean, she speaks... Cantonese, mm. but I don't think I don't know that that's necessarily even her first language. As far as I can tell, Mandarin is considerably more complex than um, Cantonese. Yeah, and she had to learn it for this. So the first thing that strikes you about the film is the music, uh, and that's uh, by Tan Dunn, again, same as with Hero, but whereas when we saw Hero several years after this, I was like, oh, this sounds like Crouching Tiger. Oh, that's, that's, that's kind of nice. It's not as good as Crouching Tiger. It doesn't have that beauty. It seems to be much more about majesty and look at the size of Imperial City. This is the more personal. Mm-hmm. 
It's got that longing and the descent and the the emotion threaded through it. But it's a very private emotion. Whereas with Hero, it's really hard to get to the people at the core of it. You've got to whittle it down. Hero is totally about the people at the core, but there's so much going on around them that's so huge, it dwarfs them. And they're wearing masks that they themselves created, and they're wearing masks that other people put on them. Mm. Whereas with Crouching Tiger, you've got these incredibly vibrant, larger-than-life Chinese superheroes, effectively. And, and that's how Wushu books feel. Like, people wander the land going, I am Iron Arm, I am Long Crane, I am Floating Fist, I am Iron Gut, I am Steel Leg, I am Iron Head, I am... You know, now you've got a Shaolin Soccer football team. Um, that's, uh, we've already talked about this in Hero, we've talked about this in Kung Fu Panda. That sense of the fantastical and the majestic and the, you know, these huge larger-than-life things going on in a traditional Chinese setting. So, you know, they'd wander about between villages and the villagers would sort of scurry to make sure that these superheroes had their tea. Mm, you know? Yeah. So, but that, that's why the tea house section is so huge because Jen goes to the tea house filled with these basically wannabe superheroes who have got some skills and all of them have got something to prove, and she's got the most to prove, but she's also with the Green Destiny, like, more of a badass than all of them. And so, the whole, like, because of the unbalance of her immense arrogance versus their standard-level arrogance, and, you know, her overly yeah, explosive powers, she just basically, she upsets the harmony of what that tea house should have been. Mm. It should have been uh, a fight which did not take the whole place down. Absolutely. But that is, again, that action scene, which is very much an action scene, is extremely telling of her character because the part of the point of that is that Jen's attitude is not really arrogant. It's, it's confidence because she knows she has the skill to back it up. She fluctuates. There's a point, and you noticed this yesterday, when they're serving her tea and the waitress spills on her sword and she just gets stuck into her cup of tea and doesn't even notice or care. And that's a lovely, quiet little moment which never gets remarked upon and just carries on. No, no one ever mentions it as part of the film. She does not respect the sword. Mm. She believes that all of this stuff is coming straight out of her. She does not realise what Li Bai has realised, which is that this thing is bad news. The Green Destiny is an implement of unspeakable power, and uh, he frankly wants to put it behind him and send it somewhere safe so that no one can use it. That's, you know, really he should destroy it. It's a ring. It's the, um, it's a great and terrible weapon that... Feels like it could also save lives, so maybe his decision was not to destroy it because somebody with the right level of respect for the sword and for other people as a result would be able to come along someday and wield it. Which he was hoping Jen might be. Yeah. Or he simply realised that in attempting to destroy the sword and that part of himself, he would be denying that so much of that darkness came from within. So instead, he puts all of that negativity, all of these bad memories, all of this sense of, I have done terrible things, into one object and entrusts that to his friend. It's a purification ritual. 
and it is interrupted by a greedy child. The, the, <laughs> the premise of the film is Lee Mubai uh, is coming to the end of a long and bloody career, which he is not massively proud of. Mm. And he is confused and conflicted. He wants to enter uh, into um, harmony with the universe. He wants to become one and allow himself freedom and peace. But he can't. He's held in the earthly realm. And there's a very kind of Victorian, well, what is it, Lumubai? Shulian asks, and then Sate comes in and interrupts them, and it, it's like he's C-3PO at this point. Like, just, just, just two minutes. He was about to say what was holding him in the earthly realm. What's obviously holding him there is uh, his feelings unresolved for Shulian. And as with Jane Austen style books, a glance is as potent as a touch in terms of connection. A touch has the intimacy of a kiss. A kiss may well be marriage, and actual making love transcends that. It is something not spoken of. And what we see on screen between Chow Yun-Fat and Michelle Yeoh is this great, unspoken depth of feeling. A tragic, almost romance for the ages. Now, I've never liked Hard Boiled. We saw it again recently. I didn't even want to review it in the movie a day because I can't think of enough to say about Hard Boiled to even really get across why I don't like it. And I've watched uh, Chow Yun-Fat in a bunch of other films and been completely nonplussed by his performances. In this, he has a stillness and a conflict and a wisdom which defies his gun-toting John Woo image. And this was the first film where he'd actually done sword-based martial arts. And he sells himself as this gifted swordsman monk who's been practicing his entire life. He has that level of charisma on screen. There is so much in this which <coughs> is subsurface. And I think a lot of that comes off the back of, um, of Lee having done sense and sensibility mm. because that that sort of uh, and that's it's more or less the same era isn't it yes late 1700s when Lima Bai starts talking about his uh, his going into he, he meditates and he goes into a place it of, takes place between 1792 and 1797 ah so, so close later. oh wait, yeah. by a couple of years. decades yeah it didn't make that much difference between um, London and Sussex and the great rolling fields of China. Mm, indeed. But yeah, he, he's had this moment where he's been trying to reach enlightenment and he, as you say, he can't. He feels locked in place. He's surrounded by light, but he feels totally lonely. And two things occurred to me at once about what was, was going on here. And one was that it reminded me very, very much of um, when Ang meets the... Uh, the Zen master, the guru, the guru in Avatar, mm-hmm. um, and basically is told you can achieve enlightenment, but you're going to have to let go of all of this earthly stuff. Which itself was a parallel for Yoda, absolutely. And so it's like God, it's like, it's like Star Wars and Kung Fu Panda and uh, Avatar all sort of rolled into one or at mm. least they're all drawing from the same source absolutely um, but that really I'd, I'd, I'd not really clicked that before and it just the idea that he might have chosen not to go further into enlightenment because there was something that he wanted to um, 
to stay for, basically. Mm. Um, and the other thing was that uh, he's maybe feeling a lot of angst over killing a lot of people. Well, I just want to <laughs> put it in the background there. Um, maybe he feels he doesn't deserve it. Yeah. But all of this comes out without really being said explicitly. There's a lot of, of conversation goes on in this movie, a lot of, of back and forth between two people, this is something I'd noticed as well, certainly the first half of the film, there's a lot of trading off between pairs of characters. Mm. So you have um, a conversation between uh, Shulian and her housekeeper, and then it's Shulian and Limu Bai, and then it's Limu Bai and Sate, and then it's Sate and his chief of staff. And, and it kind of progresses on in this chain of conversations that eventually opens up to include everybody but this this idea of pairs and pairs that cross is something that is thematically consistent throughout the film and you have this central group of characters and they are very much a pair and a pair Mm. um and then they they kind of cross over to and i kept trying to um Ship them? No. <laughs> Sorry. But, yeah, okay. No, um, I kept trying to attribute the um, the right elements to them, mm-hmm. and it proved tricky a couple of times. I think I've got it, but we can talk about that a bit later, unless you want to get it out of the way now. You want to do elements? Do, do elements? Yeah. Okay, right. So, um, basically, this is the way it worked for me, and if you have different ideas, then obviously, please chip in. Um Possibly because of how much he reminded me of Aang at this point, but Limu Bai feels very much air. He's very when he fights, he's very light. He's very elegant. He dances. Um, There's although he's feeling weighed down by all of the earthly stuff that's hanging on to him. There is a sense of wanting to drift. Yeah, and that's exactly what he gets by the end. Um, Shulian is earth. Mm-hmm. There's a moment when um, Lima Bai is talking about things not being real, mm-hmm. and she says, "Your my hand in yours a moment ago didn't that feel real?" But when he says the things we can touch aren't real, there is a look of sheer pain that crosses her face, mm-hmm. like she can't. The idea that touch is not real is utterly foreign to her. That's not something that she can get her head around. And also, um, there's an immovability about her, especially a couple of moments when she's fighting with Jen. Mm-hmm. When she, she picks gets up the this club. sudden... Um, well, even in the first fight, when they're, they're chasing over the rooftops, yeah. Jen pushes at her, mm-hmm. and she she's like, fucking no, I am going nowhere. And she's also... Jen's the one who's trying to fly and be likely move by. Absolutely. And, 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 and Julianne keeps like, nope, holding her down. Me. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. so she's Earth. And air and Earth are actually, mm. astrologically speaking, they are opposed to each other, but always work well in conjunction. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Jen is water. Mm-hmm. Now, she tr- spends most of the movie desperately trying to be anything other than water, but her emotions keep pulling her back. Mm-hmm. Um, and she flows like water, but she doesn't have the lightness to enable her to be airy, which is something that she is desperate to pursue. Mm-hmm. She gets frustrated, she gets angry, she falls in love, she experiences all of these highs and lows of emotion, and that personifies her. And at the end... She has her moment of revelation when she's kneeling in the lake with the rain falling down on her. 
so she for me was very much water which leaves leaves low to be fire which he's the prince of the desert he always wears red he's very enthusiastic and and passionate passionate. burning away absolutely but but there isn't really a lot of dare i say substance (laughs) to low he needs the other elements to give him purpose and again fire and water are two that are um, quite traditionally linked together if I had spectacles, I'd be looking at her over. I do have spectacles, spectacles, and I Can am. Can I borrow them? Yes. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the music, like... Uh, uh, like I said a long time ago, uh, Tan Dunn, um, but Yo-Yo Ma uh, on cello duties. The cello is <sighs> top three most beautiful instruments on the entire planet in, in the history of human culture, just in terms of the fact that it can get straight to your heart. There's um, a reason I took it up. Yeah. I'd say the piano is is um, maybe the most beautiful instrument in terms of its versatility. A harp? A harp is also beautiful. It's very watery in, its, um, in, in what it can do. The, the piano is more versatile in that you can do fire and earth and, and, and air on the piano as well. The cello pulls us. Does that make sense? It's earth and water. It connects on a very um, deep level. Hmm. And deep in terms of the literal sounds that it makes are very deep. I, I'm going to call this music an absolute masterpiece that, that Tan Dan's composed. Those of you who'd want to hear Yo-Yo Ma have an impact on major cinematic scores, check out the Yo-Yo Ma Plays Ennio Morricone collection for something quite spectacular. I do kind of like the um, police chief and his daughter and that, um, that was he a guard? Mm. They got their own movie going on, but they, they really are have. disastrously out of their depth. <laughs> they totally are. But I did love the um, the little friendship that springs up between um, Sue. Yeah. This poor kid who's got dragged into this battle with Jade Fox because um, Jade Fox killed her mother. Yeah. And so her father's decided to pursue her 
for miles. Um, and then when he gets killed, she's sort of completely on her own. But there's this this security guard that insists on standing outside her room mm. to protect her. And she's like, you might as well come in. It's cold out there. <laughs> the, the bit where they take on Jade Fox and Sue steps forward and goes, aha, you know, I, I will avenge my mother and pulls out a tiny butter knife. And I'm like, oh, she's going to fuck you up, kid. <laughs> <clears throat> Indeed. Because like we've all we've all heard people go, oh, this Jade Fox, she's gonna she's a killer, and then like that fight is again amazing because it just shows how dangerous this woman is, mm. uh, how you know just getting into a, a fight with her and, and how you know treacherous and how easy it is to like have every single thing you throw at her redirected back at you in a fatal way. Absolutely. Well, she's already been talked about in hushed tones. You know, she's the woman that Lee Mubai is scared, scared of. of. I mean, he's not really scared of her, but, it, you know, she killed his master and so he's got this vendetta that he's got to avenge him. That's quite interesting, actually. The, the uh, line when uh, he realises that Jade Fox has turned up mm. and he says... Um, it looks like I'll get to avenge my master after all, or, or words to that effect. But the tone with which those words are delivered, he is not thrilled about that fact. Mm-hmm. He really isn't happy about this this duty, basically, this obligation um, that has now rebounded and smacked him in the back of the head. Mm. And Jade Fox is exemplary of the self-harming nature of vendettas. You know, the police chief and his daughter can't let the death of the mother lie. They have to go after Jade Fox. And as a result, the father dies as well. Everything they throw at her comes back and hurts them. You put out rage and vengeance into the world. Nobody is ever happy. If it's always an eye for an eye, eventually you end up with a world of the blind. Something has to give. And that's what the end of this movie is about. More on that later. Because it seems like Lee Mubai is aware of this penalty for reprisal which leaves him conflicted one of the things i like most about lee mubai is that sense of conflict he Mm. doesn't like he's not just this smug i know everything i can teach you teacher he's very human Mm. well the 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 two of them um mubai and um shulian are reaching a point in their life where they're they're becoming elders Mm. They have had their time as young, feisty warriors. They've lived that life. And they're now coming to a a period of more introspective, um, you know, thinking about legacy and, um, you know, how the next generation's being raised, who's teaching them. But one of the main things that holds them apart, because obviously they are deeply uh, in love with one another, is the propriety of uh, you were engaged to my, was it brother or just combat brother? Um, yeah, um, Mubai and um, I can't remember his name, but his his best friend basically. They mm-hmm. were uh, they were brothers in arms. Yeah, and because he died, that meant that they had to go their whole lives in misery, just just out of reach of one another, because of propriety. I mean that that's a perfect, beautiful setup for this kind of drama because there is what we want and there is what we must do and that's very very easy to relate to for people who um 
you know, because we don't have that. Like, Jen's the one who's going, well, I want both what I must do and what I want as well. And she, she you know, is railing against these um, uh, walls, as, as I said. And she makes things very difficult for a lot of people and she makes things worse for herself as a result of this thrashing about. Mm. Although ironically um, if you look carefully at how the, her narrative progresses it's Julien who keeps telling her you need to be true to yourself because you're going to be miserable if you try and mm. live two lives. Either you've got to reconcile the fact that you're going to live this life that your parents want you to and do your best to be happy with that mm. Or you've got to walk away from it and have the strength to be who you really want to be. Like, it's difficult to watch this film and go, well, she should simply marry Gao and shut up. All of us want to break out of this with her. Mm. And we don't want to see her um, shuttered away, especially when it becomes quite so apparent what talent and what fire despite the fact that she's very watery, mm. and what passion she actually has. Well, there's still passion in water, I would say, but I, I think it's quite... But how wet she is, then. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's quite important that we never actually... We never see Gao. Yeah. We don't get to meet him. Is we he not don't... that arrogant-looking guy on the, on the horse? Oh, we... OK, sorry, I'll rephrase. We we see him, briefly. But we don't, don't But we don't get him. to know him. We don't... Ultimately... We have no way of knowing whether he would be cruel to Jen, whether he would be kind to her, whether he would permit her to continue her her fighting studies, which is, is obviously something she desperately wants. But that's the thing. like She wants to go to Wudan Mountain. She wants to learn, but she also doesn't want to be taught, and she doesn't want anyone telling her what to do. She, She's I was that, just going to say... You're young, you don't know what you want. <laughs> but the, the essence of it is, what Jen wants is not to have to ask anybody else for permission to do the things that she chooses to do. Yeah. That, I think, is what she she's railing against more than anything else it's not the fact that it's a, a potentially cruel husband or um you know that she's going to have a, a life that is is definitely going to be curtailed it's the fact that she wants to be able to make her own choices keeping with the idea of, of balance being one of the themes of this, Jen is torn between freedom and structure. Her life as a child has been way too much structure and not enough freedom. And as a result, when Jade Fox turns up and offers her something which looks like freedom, she doesn't even question whether it is or not. She just grabs it with both hands. Yeah. Um, when she finally realises that uh, Jade Fox actually can't now give her the necessary structure to really refine her art um, and advance her discipline, now that's what she's looking for. Um, and then you get the flashback to her being in the desert with Lowe, which is again representative of, um, of freedom for her, but Lowe can't give her any kind of structure at all. So again, she's, if she's with him in the desert, she's got all the freedom she wants, but she's still out of balance. Yeah. Because ultimately she has that skill. And to have a skill and a talent and be, to be really, really good at something 
and not pursue it and not chase it in any way can leave you feeling as empty as if someone stops you from pursuing it. I just realised. Young person fucks absolutely everything up and then is contrite about that fact and escapes away out of this world and into uh, the ethereal, leaving everyone behind to ponder them. And it's possible that in doing so, their sacrifice, their wrongs might be righted. It's Donnie Darko again. It's the same (laughs) film. Okay. Am I wrong? No. A person who is not comfortable in the world because of what how they need to live doesn't work within the construct of this world. Mm. That the only peace they can find is by leaving that. Wow. Did not expect that a couple of weeks in a row. <clears throat> Wudang Mountain, specifically. I think it was, it's called Wudang in the, the DVD and Wudang in the Blu-ray, so take your pick, folks. But Wudang Mountain feels... Like it has a massive influence, this unseen force of of these sort of warrior monks, um, you know, from Jade Fox's perspective, hoarding knowledge and refusing to let her, a woman, learn it. That's another thing that keeps coming up, the idea that Jen wants to learn all this and she's a woman. And Shulen is an incredibly gifted fighter and clearly knows this sort of stuff, but it would appear that Jade Fox... It could simply be that Jade Fox is simply pinning it on, well, he didn't want to teach me because I was a woman, as opposed to, he probably didn't want to teach you because he realised you might be psychopathic. But, um, yeah, the, 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 you know, this, this cycle of bitterness and vengeance that comes from Jade Fox stems from Wudan, and it ends at Wudan Mountain. And... It feels like, um, like I said, with Jen upsets the balance of the tea house, but that, you know, she upsets the balance of the whole world and she has to reset that balance by removing herself from it to make amends. Huh. And becomes as heir, achieving that peace that um, Lima Bai is after as well. I love the ambiguity of the ending. That's another reason why I really wasn't a massive fan of um, uh, Sword of Destiny. Because it's, you know, there's there's some allusions back to what might have happened in between the two films. But they have to be deliberately vague about it. And some films just really, you know, don't need sequels. And I wasn't dreading this. I was, I was looking forward to it. Because, you know, Yen Wuping as a director... That's that's not something to um, to take lightly. He's a you know a master at martial arts choreography, and the the fighting in this it's not just impressive or beautiful, but it's a level of both that within seconds of them leaping over rooftops lighter than air, you either completely and utterly understand that these are people who can run up and down walls without anyone ever having to explain it. Or you don't, and you reject it, and you turn it off, and you leave the room. <laughs> it's got, it's got that uh, sense of this: the, these things are as they should be. These people can bounce on tiptoes over water, and that's fine. And unlike in uh, Hero, where that that lake section goes on just a little bit too long and has that 
music. There isn't a bum note in this whole thing. There isn't a moment that goes on for longer than it needs to. Mm, yeah. This film is nigh on perfect. Pretty much, yeah. I'm trying to think of any part of it that doesn't hit for me. I can't think of anything that, that doesn't land at all. There's there's a couple of bits that maybe don't land quite as hard, but not many. The teenagers are annoying, but it's a film that has two very distinct levels of the old and the young. Mm. So when you see it the first time uh, as a youngster, you're very much with uh, Jen and Lo. And then when as you get older, you're more and more with Shulian and uh, Lee Mubai. And, you know, when we get to really old, we'll be with Satay and, oh, these young people. Mm. Actually, his, <laughs> his conversation with um, Julien when she's talking about um, uh, Mubai coming to get the sword, and he's like, oh, do you think that's really why he came? Um, that really reminded me of um, Stephen Bruce in Age of Ultron, mm. where he's talking about Natasha. And Bruce is like, uh, what? Huh? God. <laughs> so forget say you're one of the most intelligent men on the planet how can you be so dense <laughs> and that was kind of how i was feeling about shillian mm. at this point like like i said before like michelle yo was not a massively dramatic actress and neither was um uh, charian fat mm. and they pull it off here like they've been doing it for years mm. in the same way as um maggie chung and tony lung in uh, hero pulled off that we are martial artists and, and have been doing so for years um wasn't it that like Maggie Chung wasn't much, but Tony Leung had done a lot of stunt work. Uh, possibly, yeah. They pulled off both. We are martial artist superstars, and we are, you know, superstar dramatic actors of the kind who work with Wong Kar Wai all the time. The kind that uh, that Hollywood turned to and go, now this, this is world cinema. You know, they, they, they have that poise, and they have that gravity to them. And, and the same absolutely here. I'm really surprised that Ji Zhang didn't go further in Hollywood after those like a couple of little roles she was in Memoirs of a Geisha and she's apparently in the next Godzilla film. But she's been in a whole bunch of Asian focused films which most people in the West haven't heard of and it's sad because it feels like she should be the, the Chinese Scarlett Johansson. Memoirs of a Geisha was 2005. The next Godzilla will be 2019. That's 14 years out of the spotlight in the West. 14 years of her prime. That can't not feel like a waste. Why do you think the um, main centerpiece fight of this movie is uh, positioned as the Shulian versus Jen fight? Because that one seems to be the one. Like, there's a bunch of other ones which feel epic, and there are other ones which feel fun. But this one feels really personal. So, like, this is the one where they square off against each other, and the fight keeps changing direction, and it's fun and funny. But it, there's a lot of drama going on why did why, why why this and why here in the film is it the rooftop fight you're talking about oh no no no! i mean the one where shulian keeps choosing different weapons oh right okay see i wouldn't have described that one as funny there are moments of humor 
The bit where Shulian grabs the great big spear yeah, club and, and thing clang. and runs in and like clang. <laughs> okay, and Jen's just not. like, go get the other one. That's like a Guardians of the Galaxy fight. Yes, it is. But that that's, there's so much at stake with this one that I think it's... This is the one that feels like it's for realsies. Mm-hmm. And it's incredibly intense. It's a mirror of the rooftop fight. In that Jen's trying to escape and Julian's trying to keep her there. Yeah, um, but it's all flipped on its head because now Jen really feels like she has something to prove and it's, she's up against the person who has only shown her kindness and consideration mm. and, and Julian is pissed off at this point. Mm. She has had enough of this girl throwing it all back in her face. Um, she's put Limu Bai at risk. Mm. Um I mean, crashed the whole tea house, which they what they absolutely bore witness to. Um, she's put, you know, Sertay's reputations on the line. Everything is in she, danger of falling apart. She's stolen the sword, which clearly isn't hers. She's clearly incredibly dangerous, running around like a headless chicken, hurting people. Absolutely, and ultimately, Julien Sh- feels personally responsible for failing to get it back off her that first time. Yes, there's that as well, and failing to recognise quick enough and dealing with it quick enough that mm. it was clearly this girl who looks exactly like the ninja. Yeah, absolutely. Well, she knew it was her straight away, but it was it, the fact that she chose to handle things in a very subtle way and not confront them more directly. There is a really neat moment where she sort of sits down and says to Jen's mother, who's completely clueless about the whole thing, you know, the person who stole the sword, if they put it back, would be okay. You know what I'm saying? And like, she basically explains everything, winking to Jen. And then Jen's like, mm-hmm. And she's like, right, I'm just going to drop this teacup. Okay, I've got you now. Really pay attention. Yeah. Absolutely. He missed. He, she Mr. Smiths her. Yes, she does. You're Mr. and Mrs. Smithing me. Um, but also, I think the fact that the the one of the again one of the core themes of the film is about age versus experience, and oh my God, there's a lot of William Blake in this. Age versus experience. Yeah. Youth uh, versus sorry, experience. Youth versus experience, yeah. Or Lack inno- of age. innocence versus experience, specifically as well. The fact that you've got a tiger and a dragon, which were two of Blake's most prominent mm-hmm. uh, animal images that he used. There's lots in this that kind of was very reminiscent of William Blake's There's poetry. There's a sleeping me, tiger in Red one. Dragon. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Also, I think she resents the fact that Jen is so skilled. Because when it comes down to it, she is as good as she is through years of dedication and practice and uh, putting the rules and strictures of the warrior culture ahead of what she really wanted. Mm. Jen is throwing all of that to the wind and still gets to be good. That Mm. would piss me off. Yeah. And similarly, Jen's had it in one ear her whole um, teenage life from Jade Fox. Oh, they won't let you train at Wudan Mountain. You're a woman. They don't let you train at Wudan if you're a woman. And then suddenly she meets this incredible female um, fighter who is her match when she goes up against her. So she has this admiration for her. But at the same time, it kind of blows her world wide open of... Actually, could I have done this? Have I thrown my life away so far? Yeah. And even, I think, Lee Mubai says at one point, it's entirely possible that Wudan could make an exception for her because she's so good. Mm. So who did Shulian train with, if not Wudan? Um, well, I think the implication is Wudan are not the only source of martial arts knowledge, mm. but they have refined it to um, almost magical levels. Mm. 
Um, and but Julienne doesn't seem that doesn't seem to be her thing to pursue. She's gone off to run her father's business and and seems to be happy with the level that she's reached, mm. rather than continuing to try and attain enlightenment, which mm. is what Luba Bai's gone after. So yeah, the um, the, the fight yeah, it goes back and forth with them both hurting each other more and more, and they just watch the shocked expressions on on, on their face and going from you know anger through fear through arrogance and pride and resentment and occasional disgust. But Jen's um, solution to almost everything is to run. You know, when she's uh, in the desert, she runs after Lo to get the comb back. As soon as she's got the comb back, she goes blundering off running again. And it's, hang on a second, the desert is two weeks in every direction, so please eat something. It does you no good to run at this point. Obviously, she uh, tries to run away as soon as she's got the sword. Every time she keeps being dragged back by Limu Bai and by uh, Shulian when she's in disguise, when she's out of disguise, she's trying to run away and escape. And at the end, effectively, she runs from it all. She mm. escapes. She's peaceful in doing so, but she's kind of... No, I was right the first time on this one. Like, <laughs> my, my instinct was to run, and I'm going to just go with that. It's easier just keep to running. run. That final scene, one of the... You said about the ambiguity of it, which mm. is something that I love as well. Um, but something occurred to me with this watch through that hasn't before. She says to Lo, make a wish, and his wish is for them to be in the desert together again. Mm. It's not his wish that's getting granted. We never find out what her wish is. Mm. I always interpreted it as uh, when she um, gets back and sees Shulian uh, cradling the just-died Limubai, that she feels a stab of regret so deep that she can't live with herself anymore after that, knowing that all of this was her fault. And that um, her wish is to somehow make amends for that, uh, whatever way you want to interpret that as, um, you know, that he finds peace, that um, he is magically resurrected, that time itself is undone, that something occurs to make amends for this complete hash job she's made of everything. That was always my interpretation of that. Mm. And, you know, she's young and romantic and has that level of... um, that will suffice in her thinking. It's it's Romeo and Juliet in yeah. a way, isn't it? That which the the focus on the love story between Jen and Lowe is is very much they are uh, very divided in terms of their their people. He's an orphan who roams the desert as a bandit. She's an aristocrat. They couldn't possibly be further apart if they tried. Yet they have this incredibly intense love that pulls them together drives them apart pulls them together it's you know that that i i was watching it going oh my god they are such teenagers which is very romeo and juliet (laughs) surprisingly jade fox struck me this time Uh, not literally i'd be dead um but uh, as a character because of how difficult it is to craft complex compelling villains she's you know held aloft with bitterness and spite but at the same time she puts on this mask at the beginning and she you know makes uh, herself as presentable as possible and uh, it's weird like she's holding up the the wanted poster with her face on it and Jen's mum's like hmm and then they just carry on it's like well that's her she's right there 
Do you know who she really reminded me of, actually? Jade Fox? L from uh, Kill Bill. Yeah. I killed your master. But she just, she did genuinely feel pitiable and pathetic at the end, even after she's, like, she, she's so dangerous. She's so filled with poison and needles and traps and snares and um, beguilement and, uh, you know, just venom strikes. She's a, um, she's a snake, mm. much like well, she has She has no way of connecting with Jen, who she even says on more than one occasion is the most important person in her life. Um, she basically says Jen is the only person she's ever really loved. Yet she still can't interact with her in any way that isn't manipulative and controlling and controlled. She can't allow any form of of interaction that she doesn't feel totally in charge of. There's this amazing moment, which is actually a little bit melodramatic, but it does, it works for me. When um, Jen is being totally broken down and honest with uh, Jade Fox. And she says about how frightened she was when she realized she'd outstripped her teacher, that she didn't have that security there anymore. And yet Jade Fox doesn't hear any of that this little girl telling her how scared she was and all she can respond with is, uh, you know, I mean, she's not dismissive in that instant, but she still continues thinking this little girl was poisoned, she went behind my back, she didn't tell me the truth. This is a fundamental misunderstanding on Jade Fox's part as to what love actually is. She externalised a part of herself, placed it in Jen and decided... You're going to be my little translator and we'll look through this manual together. I'll get better. You'll get better. We'll help each other. You're part of me. We'll exist in a symbiotic relationship. Then she finds out that Jen's been, uh, you know, doing far, far better than her. And she feels that a part of herself that she had invested in has broken. And so she responds to it like she responds to any sense of betrayal in her life, which is rage and spite mm, and you know she clearly at the end sets her up to to be killed mm. and um so it fails effectively Lee Mubai ends up standing between the two mm. well that's one of the key differences between that that Jen gets to witness between Fox as a teacher and Mubai as a teacher that Jade Fox is it's not exactly her aim, but basically everything that she does is about keeping Jen weak. Yeah. And all Lee Mubai wants for her is for her to be stronger and, and to be truly what she can be, the best she can be. Mm. But in the uh, more mature sense of stronger to actually do the thing that's frightening rather than to, to seek absolute power yourself. Mm. Yeah. And it's not just Jen either. Um, there's a little bit of uh, of Lee Mubai doing that with um, with Lo as well when they pull him off the, the attacking the um, mm. parade route. Um, and basically, between them, Lee Mubai and Shulian have to stop Lo from completely sabotaging himself. Mm. The bamboo forest scene, um, we've got this completely higgledy-piggledy, we're jumping all over the place like a Christopher Nolan film, but um, uh, it's it's starting with the jump across the water and then into the actual forest 
it's one of the most absolutely beautiful moments ever put to camera. The green is so green. This is why we've taken so long to do Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Our clumsy words cannot do justice to what is on screen. It's too elegant. It's too beautiful. It is one of the most visually artistic films I've ever seen. Artistically, visually stunning. And perfectly captured. It. Um, I'm trying to avoid just superlatives here. Lee Mubai is uh, trying to express to Jen during this scene repeatedly how he is able to hold himself aloft because he doesn't have that um, sense of uh, turmoil dragging him down, whereas Jen does, mm. and she is having more and more difficulty you know, staying up. She keeps lashing out at him, and every time he do, she does, she loses her balance. Yeah. And all he has to do is just remain focused. Um, but he is suffering from that uh, uh, conflict. He is suffering from the, the thing that's keeping him held to the ground, the, uh, the, the earth of Julien. And again, while she retains her, I was right to keep running, I'm just going to carry on doing that, or I'm going to run in the best way possible. I'm going to simply depart, which is the, um, the, the final version of running. The thing that he wants to do is to stay. And ultimately, that's his final decision. It would have been... It would have been one level of bittersweet for him to be able to reach enlightenment and be able to depart, but his eventual decision to remain, his decision to stay with the Earth... Uh, is, is an expression of his humanity. It's he doesn't he doesn't prize transcendence like he might have done, which connects us to him because it's it's really difficult as regular people to be able to look at transcendence and go, yeah, I'd really like that. You know, complete and utter oneness. We are held down by the earth. Well, that's the, that's the human dilemma. When you get down to it, no matter what philosophy you're looking at, no matter what religion you examine, the, the fact, and I've said this before on, on more than one podcast, I would venture, um, that we have to deal with the fact that we have our feet on the ground and our head in the clouds. And we bridge that space between animal and heavenly. And every human has to find their own balance between those two things. And after the death, when um, I mentioned before that Jen feels that great stab of regret, the same one that... Um, both Lee and, uh, or sim similar to uh, what Lee and uh, Julien felt in terms of the life that they could have had that they allowed to not happen for propriety's sake. The regret expressed when it's too late 
Shulian could then strike Jen down with the Green Destiny, with this terrible sword that Limabai was trying to purify himself of. Um, and continue this cycle of reprisal and revenge and hatred and bitterness and anger. And to break that, the what is required is a measure of immense kindness. It has to come from someone who has every right to be furious. And chooses to detach from it. Oh, hang on. They switch. Limabai chooses Earth. He decides he's going to stay as a ghost and mm-hmm. drift beside Julienne until she dies too. Mm-hmm. She becomes more detached and airy in the sense that she is able to separate from her fury at Jen and let her go. Jen takes on the courage of fire to jump... And Lo ends up standing there with tears running down his face. Taking on the taking emotion, on of, the water. emotion of water. Ah, very good. Very good. And still none of them get to be together, but they do find a measure of balance within themselves. So this kind of, this kicked off, um, well, basically it kicked off Zhang Yumo going, I could totally do that, and um, and doing that several times, and also doing um, Curse of the Golden Flower and uh, the Great Wall, which are not the same thing at all. Uh, I'm I'm surprised it didn't kick off a whole slew of martial art house. Uh, films uh, from uh, um, Hong Kong cinema because they're so prestigious because mm. you can hold them up as like you know world cinema and Oscar fair but at the same time they've got this absolutely thrilling fighting and action and stuff which you know the, the Chinese audiences lap that up mm. but even if it didn't take off in a big way there was there was a handful of them and I am appreciative at least of the fact that there was enough to be able to look at them and go they're not all magnificent this style can be messed up. <laughs> it's not automatically going to be amazingly fantastic. But it does mean that the ones that do well at it, the Zheng Zhi trilogy that we're covering here, um, feel special. Yes. They feel singular and, uh, and like there were a rare combination of elements that came together. Absolutely. And they managed to avoid the inverse ninja theory. Yeah, which Curse of the Golden Flower doesn't. No. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I consider all three of these films, as I said before, to be essential um, purchases and just to keep in your collection um, to, to study. I think this might be a 4K when we eventually mm. um, you know, expand that collection. So that's Crouch and Tiger, Hidden Dragon, one of the most uh, significant uh, films for us in, in our very early period of uh, getting together. Uh, it came out at the end of the first year we were there and um, has been in our top ten list ever since. It's, uh, it continues to contain details and um, elegance which uh, you know, astounds me in every viewing. And it will remain the high point in the careers of everybody involved for me, I think. Yeah, I'm 
trying to think of anything better by anybody. Michelle Yeoh's done loads of other stuff that I love her in. Yeah. But this is astounding. Top of the pile. I love her performance in this. Um, so we're going to finish on Coco Lee's Chinese language version of A Love Before Time. This has been our 200th movie episode. Here's to 200 more. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's, School's Out. Yeah.